0: Here am I, send Aaron. Here am I, send someone else. And one of the reasons we so often say that is because we don't think we can do what God's telling us to do. You know, Moses was there looking after the sheep. He knew he could look after sheep. He'd been doing it for 40 years, so he'd uh, polished that particular talent very well. But when God suddenly appeared to him in a burning bush and said, come on, I'm going to send you back to Egypt and you're going to bring a million and a quarter people, out of the country and into Canaan and keep them alive in a desert, he said, here am I, send Aaron. And maybe one of the reasons, just one of them, was that he just was overwhelmed that he couldn't do it. He wasn't gifted to do it. And if God could send his brother, after all, his brother was back there. His brother was older than he was. His brother was wiser than he was. He was sure. And Aaron could speak. You know, he says to God, well, I, I stutter. I, I can't even talk properly. And God said, well, I made your mouth. I know exactly how you can talk. That's nothing to do with it. I'll give you the word. You go. A- and he ends up saying, well, here am I, send Aaron. And God says, well, all right, I will send your brother. I know he can speak. And so apparently Moses wasn't a very good speaker. How could he take a million and a quarter people and teach them what God wanted them to do? How could he receive the Ten Commandments, although he didn't know he was going to do that then, but how could he receive God's Word and give it out to the people when he wasn't the speaker? The speaker in the family was sister and brother. Both of them were good speakers. Miriam was tremendous. She was a prophetess. She was musical. She was everything. And there was Aaron, too. They could speak, but he couldn't speak. So when we think of Moses saying, here am I, send Aaron, we shouldn't look down on him too much, because maybe he was figuring this out. God, you'd be a lot better off if you sent him. And you know, that's what many, many people think today, and especially women. I find that they are very unsure of themselves, very unsure of their gifts, very unaware that God could possibly use them to do whatever it is that they're asking That God seems to be asking them to do, or that others ask them to do. So, we're going to look at this and we're going to figure out how we discover our gifts according to the scriptures that we're in at the moment, which is studying a little bit of the life of Moses. Now, they are. Through the Red Sea, they've been grumbling and griping, and God has been dealing in mercy and love and giving them water and giving them food and bringing the quails to feed them in the evening and manna in the morning. And we've been this route, and we know that God is going to give them water when they're thirsty and bread when they're hungry. And so now they're going along in the desert, getting a bit fed up with all the sand and whatnot. And every time they camp at night, Moses goes a little way outside the camp and he puts up a tent and everybody's nothing else to do. I mean, there's nothing much to do in the desert anyway, except watch what Moses does. And there's usually something happening when Moses does anything. And so they all get up, it says, and stand in the door of the tent and watch what he's doing. Oh, look, he's going, putting his tent up. And when Moses has finished putting this tent up, which is called the tent of meeting, The Shekinah glory, which is an aurora around the presence, the immediate presence of God. God is everywhere, but he he manifested himself in a particular piece of geography, our geography, on this earth, many times, especially in the wilderness days. This was an encouragement. I don't know if you've ever thought, if only I could see God, if only I could just, just see him then I would be encouraged. Well, the children of Israel felt like that. And God in his mercy allowed them to see something of the eminence, something of the presence of God. And it's very difficult to know what it was they did see, except they called it glory. They called it light. They called it Shekinah glory, the glory of God himself. As soon as Moses put his little tent up, the Shekinah glory came. And literally this this cloud that had followed them through the desert or was beginning to follow them through the desert and guard them, just literally enveloped this little tent. And Moses went inside. Can you imagine? Um, I would have stood in my tent door and watched to see if he'd come out again. I mean, after all, you go in and talk with God and God is there. And glory is all around this little tent sitting in the desert. It must have been very exciting. Well, a time came when God said to Moses, Now, it's not just you I want to come to the tent of meeting. I want everybody to come to the tent of meeting. And I can imagine Moses saying, well, it's not big enough for everybody. It's only a little tent It's big enough for you and me and Joshua and maybe Aaron and Miriam. And God said, no, I want, I want you to make a tent. I, wa- I want you to make a tabernacle. I want you to create a place of worship that everybody can come to. Well, I'll be talking about the tabernacle. I'll be explaining what it was like and the symbolism of all. It's very, very exciting. It's one of my favorite lessons in the scripture is that actual tabernacle that Moses put up and what happened in there and the the meaning of it all. But he was told by God that he was to build this tabernacle. And so we're going to look at the actual work that was required for this tent of meeting, this bigger tent of meeting where everybody... The women, the foreigners even among them, the strangers among them, the proselytes that had come out of Egypt with them, anybody that wanted to could learn how to approach God and actually how to experience the presence of God himself. They were going to build the tabernacle. So Moses, after he had been up to receive the Ten Commandments, and remember he came up He came down the mountain, found them all, worshiping the golden calf, and he broke the Ten Commandments. He had to go up the mountain again. He got more Ten Commandments, same Ten Commandments, more stones, came down again into the the valley, and he came down with a lot more than the Ten Commandments. He had stayed up there long enough to get a blueprint, plans, the architect's design, decor, decorations of this tent and he didn't sit up on top of the mountain trying to figure it out himself he didn't take a committee up there to do it I I thought so much about this there is absolutely no way that Moses could have come down from the mountain with a plan that was going to work unless God gave it him and in fact if you read the main portion of the book of Exodus you will find that it is laying that plan out, drawing the plans. And so it wasn't only the Ten Commandments he came down the mountain with. It was the plan of the tabernacle. Now, the reason that we know God gave him that plan on the mountain is because Hebrews 8, verse 5 tells us. Let me read that to you. This sanctuary, that's the tabernacle, is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. And so God took him up the mountain to give him a blueprint, plans, the architect's design. And he came down with that. Now that was the big part done. He knew exactly what had to be done. But somebody had to do it. Who was going to do the work so that the worship could take place? Who was going to do the work so that everybody's gifts could be given a chance to be exercised? And everybody in Israel would feel that they had an opportunity to contribute to this incredible worship experience when they could come into this place and meet God. Well. First of all, we've got to turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 35 and 36, and find out what we can. The first thing Moses asked, or the first thing that he laid on the people, was that everybody had something to contribute. Every single person had an opportunity. He told Israel that contributions were needed. And in 14, 4 through 19, we're going to take little bits out of this passage. We read about the offerings that were asked for, first of all. Moses said, now let's start and accumulate the things we're going to need for this building. That means everybody that's got a willing heart and really wants to give, we need some of your material possessions. Now, I don't know if you've ever realized this, but along with the gifts you've been given... We tend to always think of spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are all your gifts, a great big umbrella. And some of the gifts you've been given are material gifts. They're the things you possess. These are gifts of God. He gave you strength to work, to spend, to accumulate material possessions. And the Bible talks about those possessions as gifts. God has gifted you that you might give others. There's a wonderful verse in the scriptures that says he has given you in order that you might accumulate gifts in order to give them to somebody else that hasn't got any gifts. And so along with all the things we'll be talking about, our natural talents, our spiritual abilities, our material possessions are part of the gifting of God. It is he that gives us power to get wealth, And we get wealth in order that we might give to those that are less fortunate than ourselves. That's one reason. And so Moses says, now then, you've all got something to give. Some of you have got more material possessions than natural talents, even, or spiritual abilities. And so those of you that have accumulated great Amounts of material possessions will want to give according to what God has given you. In fact, in 27, the leaders brought onyx stones and other gems. They brought the semi-precious stones and the gold for the breastplate and for the really expensive part of the work. Now, when they'd spoiled the Egyptians, if you remember, God gave them favor with the Egyptians before they came out of Israel. They had spoiled them. That means that they had gone into their houses and helped themselves with everything they could carry, and that their ox carts could be filled with and their donkeys could be laden with, and they spoiled the Egyptians. They came out with great amount of gold and silver and linen and thread and all these goodies because they were a slave people. They didn't have anything themselves. But when they left Egypt, they had the wealth of Egypt. And some of them had accumulated a lot of those possessions. Whose were they? God had given them in a very remarkable way into their hands. Now they were asked to give them. Now, God never asks us for what we haven't got. He does ask us for what we have. And everyone has something to offer. You know, whenever I hear of, of money being asked for, sometimes I think, well, I give to this and I give to that, and I really don't have any more cash to give. I don't have any more, perhaps, ability to give, even writing a check. Then I begin to remind myself that that's just one little tiny part. What else have I to give? What, what is the something I have to give? Now, I was staying in a home where I saw a wonderful example of this, I was staying in a seminary home, taking a breakaway, a women's breakaway down in St. Louis. And I was staying with a beautiful little seminary wife married to the head of the New Testament department down there, and they live in a very modest seminary apartment, or more than an apartment like a townhouse. This little girl actually comes from a very wealthy family but their parents have never supplemented their ministry. They have been generous in other ways. But they have very meager belongings, this couple. They have three of the most gorgeous children I've ever met anywhere in every way. Little boy was sitting eating his, eating his food and everybody was talking and he hadn't been asked any questions. He was just five and he was looking a bit left out. And so his daddy said to him, well, you've got left out. Tell Mrs. Briscoe what you want to be when you grow up. Just the sort of thing fathers should never ask little boys in front of guests. But anyway, his daddy did. He said, tell Mrs. Briscoe what you want to be when you grow up. And he's got, he got two of the biggest brown eyes I've seen for, since I saw my own grandchildren's eyes. But he looked at me and he thought, and everybody's attention focused on this poor little guy. I felt quite sorry for him. And he thought and he thought and he said, what do I want to be when I grow up? And then his eyes lit up and he said, bigger! <laughs> It is so cute. I wish we all wanted to be bigger when we grew up spiritually. Anyway, but they are building a new church. They're planting a church. They belong to this church in the area that's being planted. And the conversation turned around that family meal that we had together about what they could give. And the daddy said, well, we just don't have money to give. Uh, you know, seminary professors take a cut in salary, uh, I'm afraid. Not, they never get a raise. They always seem to be taking a cut every year, and they just really don't have any money. The mom said, well, all right, we can't give any money. Then what can we give? And one of the little boys said, what about the Persian rug that grandma gave us this Christmas? And I'd noticed this very, very beautiful Persian rug that was in the hallway. You had to notice it because it was in stark contrast to the shag-like carpet that they'd been living with, and all the rest of it. It was just beautiful, and it was, you know, it was obviously a very good rug. I know rugs, and I I knew it was a very good rug. And to my amazement, the mom immediately said, "That's a wonderful idea." I was so worried that we didn't have anything to give we can give our rug. And I sat there quite amazed because that rug was rolled up and no sooner had it been said it was ready at the door for Daddy to take that night to the building committee and to give. Because what they had, they counted that material possession, they counted it a contribution seeing God had gifted them with this particular beautiful gift and I was really very moved and I thought, you know, everyone has something to offer. Everyone has something to offer. And that's what these people began to do. They rummaged through the things they'd taken from the Egyptians and one of them said, Oh, look at this beautiful Egyptian rug. Just looks so nice. Once we get into the promised land and we build it, It we'd be lovely in the, in the hallway. And my husband's good with wood and he's got all this gopher wood he brought out with him from Egypt and he he could make me a nice wooden floor to our house and the rug would look so charming there. And Moses said, now everybody has the opportunity to bring something. Silver and gold, yes, but anything you want with a willing heart to contribute. And the Bible says in 35 that they began to bring, they began to bring, they began to bring. And in the end, 36, Verse 6, Moses gave an order, and they sent this word throughout the camp. No man or woman is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained for bringing more, because what they already had was more than enough to do all the work. And you have this incredible picture of them going through their belongings, their possessions, and counting them gifts to give. And I would suggest something to you that that's a very exciting thing to do. I was in our son's home when an offering was needed for the homeless. Their little church was doing this little project. And my daughter-in-law said to my son, let's go to our closet and let's give a piece of clothing. And she said, let's give our favorite piece of clothing our best piece of clothing. And my son said, oh, (laughs) that's our leather jackets. And she said, yes, I know. And they went to their closets and they looked through, you know, and I sat there and I was just so proud of them because that's what eventually after a lot of going forth and looking at this and pulling this out, well, this is nearly as good as the leather jacket, but they knew it wasn't quite as good as their favorite pieces of clothing. And those were the things that they gave. And again, I was moved. And you know, when God sees us bringing our gifts, he's moved too. He says, thank you. And when God moves us with a willing heart to give, you always end up with more than you give away. Give and it will be given unto you, Press down, running over. It doesn't mean that God will necessarily replace that Persian rug, although sometimes that's the way it goes, actually. But it does mean that that's part of the gifting that God has given us to give. Now, along with our possessions go our natural abilities and our spiritual gifts. Everyone has a natural ability. He asked for people of skill, those that could weave, those that could work with bronze, those that could work with wood. He said, now, what are your natural skills? Now, everybody has natural skills, believers and unbelievers alike. They all have natural abilities because we're made in the image of God and his creative genius is in us. We have natural abilities that we are born with. He weaves us together in our mother's womb and he gives us as part of our genes, part of our background, he gives us natural abilities. What are natural abilities? Anything that you do is a natural ability. The thing you got an A for at college or school. The thing you enjoy doing. Women often say to me, I, I say, oh, did you make this? Something practical they've made with their hands. Yes, I, oh, what a wonderful skill. Oh, no, it's not, a, they don't look at it as a skill. They say, oh, that's just something I enjoy doing. It's a natural ability, something that they really enjoy because they're naturally able, natural ability. They're naturally able to do it without sort of seemingly too much effort. Yes, it might need discipline, it might need honing, it might need practicing, but it's something they naturally can do. And this is something you can give. But you're not to give it unless you give it with a willing heart. It's interesting to me that about seven times through this chapter, you see this, only if you have a willing heart, that's what God says in verse five of 35, from what you have take an offering for the Lord, everyone who is willing, only a willing heart. You know, I think back to my early days as a teenager and I look at all these verses, verse five, 21, 22, 26, 29, five times over. If you've got a willing heart, that's what I want, says God. If you haven't got a willing heart, keep it. I don't want you serving me. I don't want you even giving me something if you haven't got a willing heart. I remember as a teenager being very sulky and not wanting to help. I always hated housework. I haven't changed much. I don't enjoy it. I like it done. I like my house clean. I like it tidy. And then I like to get on with life. (laughs) But it isn't one of my great joys. I just don't enjoy it. And as a teenager, I didn't enjoy it. And I remember sitting in a winter night and there was lovely coal fire in the hearth and my father was reading his fishing books and I was snuggled up reading a book that I wanted to read and my mother was slaving away in the kitchen getting supper ready. And my father looked at me and very quietly said, go and help your mother. And I said, she doesn't need help, I asked her before. He said, go and help your mother whether she, you think she needs it or not. She needs some help. Well, I was mad and I threw my book down and I, typical, you know, junior high, coming up senior high and got out into the kitchen and I arrived, in my mother's words, next to her like a little tornado (laughs) and uh, said, well, what do you want me to do? And she said, nothing. Thank you. Go back. I don't want you here with a face like that. If you don't want to help me and, you know, if you don't want to do it with a willing heart, get out of here. And I think those of you that are mothers know what I mean. You'd rather they didn't (laughs) help you than helped you with an unwilling heart. Well, this put me in a terrible dilemma because I knew I couldn't go back into the cozy fire (laughs) immediately because my father would say, what are you doing back here? Go and help your mother. And I'd be in a problem again. But she wouldn't have me in. she said, get out of my kitchen. I don't want you here with a, a sulky face like that. If you can't help me with a cheerful heart, I don't want you. And so I went into the, into the hallway, and in England you, you, have, you don't have central heating. <laughs> it was freezing out there. Mother was nice and warm because she had the kitchen oven on, and father was nice and warm because he had the big coal fire, and I was in the hall, and I didn't dare go into my dad, and I didn't dare go back to my mother. And I thought, oh, this is so miserable. And eventually I counted up to what I thought was quite a reasonable number and then went back in casually whistling as if I'd helped my mother and sat down with my book, and my father just looked up and said, What are you doing back in here? Go and help your mother. I was at it again. But you know, years later when I read some of the scriptures, I came across that verse, We are not to give grudgingly or of necessity, because God loves a cheerful giver. And then I understood, and I look back, and of course I've had teenagers myself and been through it all, And I understand why God doesn't want us to give grudgingly, because we have to, or of necessity, because it's got to be done, somebody's got to do it. But the word is hilariously, cheerfully, like my friend said, yes, the rug, roll it up, let's give it away. With a willing heart, everybody has that choice to have that good attitude about it. Just be willing. So what are some of these gifts, then, that we could give? Well, let me just use some personal illustrations. I think back to my natural talents that I had before I was a Christian. I remember as a little girl of 10, gathering four friends around me. I was very bossy. That's what leaders are like. They're bossy. Um, and I used to boss all my friends around. You do this, you do that, you do that. And they used to do it, most of them anyway. And so the ones that would be bossed around, I made into my gang. And I was the leader of the gang. And we organized things, because I like to organize things, start things. And I said, let's have a club. We'll call it the Evergreen Club. So we all had badges and secret words, and and our gang was was this club. There was a little girl of six in it. She was the sister of one of my friends, Sarah, who played the cello. And Julie, she was Canadian, and Julie was good at the piano, and I played the recorder. So we had a real band here, you know, at this age. And then there was another couple of girls in. That was it. And so I said, let's let's do a play for the whole village. This was at the age of ten, I want you to know. And so I wrote a play, and it was about Miss Prune and Miss Prism and a wicked fairy and these two old spinster ladies and how the wicked fairy came and messed up their life. And so then I told everybody who they'd be. You are Miss Prune and you're Miss Prism and Julie's the bad fairy. And, and, and the little girl of six said, what can I do? And I said, well, well, you can sing. We'll get you into it somehow. So then we had this musical bit, and I played... I've got an awful lot of coffee in Brazil on my record (laughs) and and the lady with the cello did her little uh, the girl with the cello did that and Julie did something played the piano I think and 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 then we had our play and Julie's mother got the entire village in everybody in the village came and we charged them sixpence each and we gave it to charity now then that was a natural talent for me and so what I could give when I came to Christ was all that creativity in the sense of writing and drama. It was natural talent, and God drew alongside it through the Spirit and used it as a spiritual ability as well. I think about tennis. I was good at tennis. I played for Cambridge. I played for my college. I played for my school. I played in tournaments. I won a very big adult tournament at the age of 14. I was good. It's good with a racket, never had any lessons. I was just naturally talented. When I became a Christian, I sat down, I made a list of every one of my natural talents. And I got down my knees and I said, Hey, you are Lord, I want you to use every one of these for you. Then I started to figure out how could I use my tennis for him. Well, that was easy. I just made a list, first of all, of all my friends that needed to know Jesus. And I asked them to play tennis with me. And then one by one, as I played tennis with each of them, I shared my faith. And I lost all my friends and the tennis matches. (laughs) Didn't matter so much anymore. But I used my tennis to witness. Then I thought, well, how else could I use my tennis? I thought, I know, I can, I can put on tournaments. I'd learned how to be involved in the in the statewide tournaments, so I knew the running of them. And in England, tennis is played right across the community. You don't have to pay a lot of money to belong to a tennis club. It's, everybody plays tennis from morning till night and it's, it's just, everybody does it. And then if you're in a club, you have to put on a tournament. You have to learn how to do that and, and do the work of it. So I knew how to do it and I thought, I could put on a, I could put on a city-wide tennis tournament properly You know, get cups and call it something and let's do it. And anybody could do it and everybody always signs up for it and have hundreds of people involved. And then we could have it down at the tennis club that's on the beach. And at night, we could have a great big bonfire and we could get a Christian group in here and we could get a pastor to come and and preach the gospel. And I could use my tennis. So you give your natural abilities. And God begins to give you ideas how you can use them. Exciting. He used to write letters to all the people I was leading to Christ. Try and help them to grow in Jesus. Why do you think I write books? Because I started to journal. I started to write letters. And so natural talents that if I had never come to Christ would still be a talent and being used for myself or the world can be used if they're given to God. And the word is consecrated set aside. Moses said, bring your natural talents, put them here in this pile or that pile, and we'll do something with them. And that's what they did. And it said, anybody that can do any sort of craft, bring it. Have you ever wondered if you're good at crafts, how could I use this for God? If I'm really good at a craft, I could have a little craft class in my neighborhood for my neighbors, and we could do this craft and never mention Jesus till the last day. And then maybe I can think of a clever way of giving them a little booklet and sharing my faith or whatever. You can use your natural talents to build what God wants to build. So make a list of them. That's very exciting for me to do that. And you know, I would have to say that as far as I know, the natural talents God has given me have all been put to use in a ministry, except one, that's skating. I have never used my ice skater. I was going to be an ice skater instead of a teacher. And pneumonia when I was little and I was sort of chesty. And so the doctor said, what you need to do is learn to skate. And so when I was a little girl, I went to Liverpool ice rink and I learned to skate. And you can go in these little shows, you know, and my sister was a lot better than me. She got in the big shows and I I didn't get as many medals as she did and whatnot. But I was good enough to be able to teach skating if I wanted to do it. It was my parents that put their foot down and said, you're not going to do that. But I've never used my ice skating. And you know, maybe I never will, but the thought did just occur to me the other day. <laughs> Remember when every, every shopping center had a little ice rink? I thought, wouldn't it be neat if I could put one of my drama plays on ice, if I could just find some people that could skate? Wouldn't that be wonderful, a gospel on ice? <laughs> I don't think i have done that, but I've never used it yet, but maybe one day. And you know what's so exciting? Just those natural talents, the things that you do good. And all of you do something good. Even if it's mothering skills, cooking, Doing somebody's hair. Just imagine offering to do everybody's hair that can't afford it to be done if you're really good at it, and then being able to talk to them. Being able to build a bridge of friendship for God. So you consecrate, set aside your talents, and with a good attitude, give it to God. You can count on the Spirit. In 30, down to the end of 35, Moses said to the Israelites, Now then, the Lord has chosen these two special men and has filled them with the Spirit of God, with skill, ability, and knowledge in all kinds of crafts. You notice that the Holy Spirit does something with your natural talents. And they are just as much a spiritual Ability as far as God is concerned, as a spiritual, spiritual ability, which we will talk about now. Everyone has a natural talent. And if we could only be restrained from bringing them, if only God could say to us, No more, no more, no more, thank you very much, yes, I'll use this and I'll use this and I'll use this, and what about doing that now? You don't need to bring me anymore, you've brought me so much of your natural talents. That's the spirit he wants to see. But what about now our spiritual gifts? Because along with all these practical preparations for which natural talents, spirit-led, spirit-filled natural talents were used, and along with all the material possessions, there were also to be clothes made for the priests. And the priests and the Levites and Moses and Aaron and Miriam and the women who served in the temple were all to have specific garments made for them. And they were to have them because these people were to be preachers and teachers, prayers, worship leaders, singers, choirs, counselors, encouragers, people that prophesied, people that healed. And these are the sort of spiritual gifts that we think about when we think of spiritual gifts. Everybody says, well, I don't know what sort of spiritual gift I have, but if you would only start with your material possessions and all your natural talents you would find out what spiritual gifts you had. Yes, you would, because so often they come alongside. And if you would only consecrate what you know you can do, then what you don't know you can do suddenly begins to happen as you do what you know you can do. You can be a naturally talented teacher but not have a spiritual gift of teaching If your natural talent is consecrated, God will use that. There are some teachers, however, that find as they are using their natural teaching gift, something happens and people get converted. And they discover that using their natural talent, they have discovered the gift of an evangelist they didn't know they had, which is a spiritual ability doesn't mean that just a natural gift of talented teaching spirit-filled isn't a spiritual gift it just means that that's a natural talent consecrated spirit-filled that god is using and it's just as important as the gift of an evangelist but often the gifted teacher will find themselves using their natural talent and realizing they are effective in changing people's lives and that's one way you discover that you have a spiritual ability. They often run alongside, they often run in and out of your natural talents. And that's why when people are always saying to me, if only I knew what I should be doing and what my spiritual gift is, I start and say, what are your natural talents? What are you doing with them? And I often figure out they're never doing anything with them. So that's what I do. That's easy to find out what their natural talents are. I get them going. I, I, I find a need that needs their natural talent. I link them up, they get going, they enjoy it. And as they're doing it, a lady said this to me last week. She said, "You know that job you got me—just just putting stuff in envelopes at Downbrook." And I said, "Yes." She said, "I love doing it. She, I love. I've always liked stuffing things in envelopes. <laughs> it's, it's a natural talent. You know, people have natural talents of stuffing envelopes. Praise God! We need a lot of envelopes stuffed." As she was stuffing envelopes, the lady next to her was stuffing envelopes. A lot of troubles. She began to tell this lady, and so the lady stuffing envelopes began to listen. And there's two or three ways of listening. And as she listened, she began to listen very creatively and she was able to share a little bit of encouragement. She had listening skills. That lady is now going into a counseling course because she found a spiritual ability that ran aside a natural talent. And if I had said to her, do you think God has gifted you spiritually to be a counselor? She would have dropped dead with fright. What, me? No, I'm, all I can do is stuff envelopes. But what she didn't know is everybody is gifted with a spiritual ability. And if you will just put your head down and put your shoulders to the work of the Lord, where you know you can help, your spiritual abilities, the opportunity for them and the ability will come as you're doing it. So often it happens like that. Now, this session is far too short, but in Here Am I, Sand Aaron, there is a list of the spiritual abilities that are set out in Corinthians. And there is a list explaining those spiritual abilities to you. And I talk about the prophets and the teachers and the evangelists, the traveling presenters of the evangel, the pastors, the overseers, and I try and define each of those spiritual abilities for you. And you might want to go over those with your Bible. I hope you seriously do. The thing is, as was reminded by our testimony, and that was a real neat testimony, we have to always be sure that we are looking not to the gift when we discover a spiritual ability we really enjoy using but to the giver like when stuart used to come home after a long long time away and the kids would fly up to him and he would be all excited and think what are they going to say hello daddy we're so glad to have you back what was their first question what you bring me (laughs) now that's very childlike and we smile but it is childlike and as adults we shouldn't say to god what you give me we should say, I'm so glad to have you here. We should be more interested in him and in his person and what he gives us and the gifts that we have. And Paul says there's a lot of dangers with spiritual abilities. You can get so absorbed and wrapped up in them and selfish about them. And some of them are, give you maybe a spiritual high and you can enjoy that more than the reason they're given to you to edify the body, to encourage the body. So there are dangers, and that's all wrapped up in those chapters. But basically speaking, if you find a need and meet it, whether you know you can or not, just try and muddle through. You might discover a spiritual gift you didn't know you had. If you suspect you might have a gift of teaching, offer yourself to the Sunday school and find out. They only put you to work for three months. You can get out at the end of it (laughs) if you find you were wrong. But wouldn't it be sad if you had a gift of teaching, a spiritual gift of teaching, as well as a natural gift of teaching? Both are needed. And you never tried to find out if you could do it. So what you do is you put yourself in a position. You put yourself in a risk's edge. And of course, a lot of us don't do that. I have to tell you a story. There's two things you find out, whether you can or whether you can't, by offering to meet a need. That's how you discover your spiritual abilities. Offer to me to need. That needs doing. I'll do it. Even if you're saying to yourself, oh, here am I, send Aaron. <laughs> Try it. We needed to put concrete in a building when I was a youth leader. So I rang up the concrete man, found him in the book, made concrete, and I said, I need some concrete. He said, when do you need it? I said, seven o'clock on Tuesday. He said, what do you want it for? How how big an area? I said, well, we're going to put an art cellar in this old building. So he said, oh, you'll need so many tons. I gave him the dimensions, and he said, what time do you need it? And I said, seven o'clock. Three times he asked me, and I thought, this man's weird. Why does he want to know what time? He said, what type of concrete? And I said, oh, I don't know. I, I don't know anything about concrete, but we're going to come down and, and, and put it down. I've, I've got all the kids ready to come at, at uh, you know, 7.30 or whatever. He said, now, what time? He said, I'll, I'll send you some ready mix concrete. And I knew that was the name of it, ready mix. So I told him again, and I said, that's super. I said, give me a ton. Give me a ton, then, if that's what you say, of ready mix. And he thought I said, ready mixed so he mixed it, and he brought it early, and he put a ton of ready-mixed concrete on the sidewalk outside our youth center. Have you ever seen a ton of ready-mixed concrete? Well, not only was he early, we were late. And by the time I came around the corner, I thought, that's funny, I've never noticed that mountain there before. <laughs> right in front of the door, but it had set. Well, there was about, it had set about nine inches in, so it was solid on the outside and sort of gooey inside and all crumbly. It was ruined, of course. And that's a story in itself, but I discovered that I did not have a natural talent or a spiritual gift for making concrete. (laughs) But I tell you something, I found I had all sorts of other spiritual gifts and natural talents as I tried to meet a need. That was a disaster. But there were other things I tried to do that I'd never done before, and to my amazement I found out I could do them. And you'll never find out if you can do anything unless you try. When I first became a pastor's wife, I said to my husband, I can't do this. I do not have the gifts this church expects me to have. I do have gifts, I know I have gifts, but they're not the ones that churches are looking for in a pastor's wife, so it's been a terrible mistake and maybe I'll die, get leukemia, God will give you an American wife. It'll be fine, but I can't do this. I'm going back to England. And he said to me, if a job's worth doing, it's worth doing badly rather than not doing it at all. And I thought he got it wrong. I said, no, if a job's worth doing, it's worth doing well. That's why we don't discover our gifts. If we can't do it well, we don't do it. He said, no, I didn't say that. He said, if it needs doing, do it. Better to do it badly than nobody do it. And many of those things I did extremely badly, and I still do them badly today because I do not have a natural talent or spiritual gift. But out of sheer duty and guts and a willingness to make a fool of myself, I do them anyway because they need doing. But as I did some other things I didn't think I could do, to my amazement, I found out that I could do them. And you start doing it badly and willingly and cheerfully and hilariously because nobody else is doing it. And suddenly you say, boy, I'm beginning to do this goodly. (laughs) Start off doing it badly, and you finish up doing it goodly, if you do it willingly. As a verse in the Bible says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. So you do it heartily and badly, for as long as it takes to figure out if you can do it goodly. And if you can't do it goodly, somebody sitting in the congregation will come up and say, Oh, Jill, what a mess you're making of that. Let me help you. And that's the way you get all the jobs done in the church. (laughs) Pastors' wives are willing to do it heartily and badly, and everybody is sorry for you. And those that can do it goodly that are sitting there doing nothing, come and do it. And then you discover some of those talents and gifts you didn't know you had. Because you want to serve the Lord. You want to bring your material possessions. And you want to bring your natural talents. And you want to figure out, as you do those two things first, won't be too hard. Because your spiritual abilities, as you do the work of the Lord cheerfully and willingly, will begin to be needed and surface as you meet needs, as you serve people where you are. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness and thank you for this lesson. Very inadequate, but your word gives us lots of instructions. There are many, many books that we can read about how to figure out the spiritual abilities you've given us. But Lord, some of us don't even need to look at that. We need to bring and consecrate to you who we are and what we can do and give that to you as best we can, or perhaps with the help of somebody that knows us and loves us, maybe better than we know and love ourselves. Help us to make that list of the abilities we can consecrate to you, training that we've had, skills and hobbies that we've never even thought about in this sense. And Lord, if you will and if you wish, use those, that your house may be built, the house of God, The kingdom of God and Lord I pray that the spiritual abilities that will begin to discover as we heartily serve the Lord willingly serve the Lord those abilities I pray may never get in the way of the one who gave them may never distract us may never absorb us may never trip us up and we may remember that you divide those gifts severally as you will that everybody has a different gift everybody has a unique gift We mustn't put our gifts on anyone else, but discover our own. Teach us these things. We ask it for Christ's sake. Amen.